1999 The Podcast is a production of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts on movies, comics, and all things pop culture, head to cageclub.me. To contact us with questions, comments, or just to say hi, send us an email at 1999cageclub.me. You can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB and Joey at SoulPot. And you can follow the show on Twitter at 1999thepodcast. To support the show, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The show is written, produced, and edited by us. Welcome to 1999, the podcast where we explore all the movies that made 1999, arguably the best movie year ever. I'm John Brooks. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And in two weeks, we'll release our first episode dedicated to just one movie, and then we'll continue to do so every other Monday between now and the end of human civilization. Why 1999? Well, that's the subject of our first episode, the prequel to the official series. So this will be episode zero for your bookkeeping purposes. Does that make sense? No, but also who cares? Yeah, so today, John and I are joined by author, journalist, and devoted movie lover, Brian Raftery. We're going to discuss his book, Best Movie Year Ever, and ask him why he he thinks 1999 was so special. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. But with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with Brian. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on our, what we're calling our prequel episode, which is consistent with sort of 1999 terminology. Uh, this is the episode where we kind of preview what we're going to be doing throughout this podcast and why we're doing it. And we realized there really just wasn't anybody better than bringing on the person who um, quite literally wrote the book on this subject. <laughs> Before I start talking to you and about you, would you like to talk a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, what you do, and um, why you are the ideal guest? <laughs> That's very kind of you. That is, uh, I don't know if I'm the ideal guest for anything, but I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'm a journalist, and I've been covering movies, oh my gosh, almost about 2020. I mean, if you go back to when I was writing very bad articles about The Phantom Menace for my college paper, I've been writing about like 25 <laughs> years or something. <laughs> Um, but I am a journalist in LA and a couple years ago I decided to write a book about the movies of 1999 and just sort of talk to a lot of the filmmakers and actors who were involved in that year because it always struck me as a really kind of, not to be too grand or sweeping, but a very kind of epochal kind of industry changing year that um, was filled of all these really interesting films and a lot of new directors and a lot of new ideas and visions, but most importantly, I was I was there that year. I went lived in New York. I went to see all these movies, and it was one of the most fun years to be going to the movies every weekend. You know, two or three movies a weekend. It was just kind of um, a real. It was like just one of the most fun moments for me as a quote unquote grown up moviegoer to see all these movies coming out one weekend after the next, and kind of having my mind blown on a regular basis. Joey, I, I remember like you and I in one of another podcasts that you have done, <laughs> you and I, I think there was this moment where I was like, wait, all these movies came out in 1999. Yep. Yep. You know, I don't, I don't remember if I knew at the time that it was a big deal. I think I kind of did. Right. But um, Brian, when, when did it sort of dawn on you? Like how long between, I mean, obviously it's been 20 plus years, right. Um, in between when the year happened and when you wrote the book, but was there a point where you were like, wait, that one year, there was something going on there and I need to need to sort of encapsulate it uh, in this in this book? Well, you know, weirdly, I I kind of knew it at the time only because my first job out of college was I was an intern at Entertainment Weekly. I wound up working there for four years and um, it was truly like the greatest you know, job of my life in terms of being a young culture nerd and suddenly thrown into the offices of, of you know, what was at that point the most fun you know, kind of snarky, uh, informed group of movie nerds. And Entertainment Weekly actually did a cover story about 1999 before the year was over. I think it was right. November of that year. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's cool. But I was also, I was only like 23 or 24. And I probably at that point was like, yeah, every year is great. Every movie year is great. Like what's, the, you know, I had just been like, you know, did you see Starship Troopers two years ago? That was amazing. <laughs> you know, I was very much, the 90s were the decade in which I was finally allowed to see R-rated movies by myself. I, you know, worked in a video store in the 90s. I, I don't think it was, you know, I don't think it was the 
the, I'm not going to talk about every great 90s movie. I'm not going to elevate every crummy 90s movie, but it was a really fun decade. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, Matrix, Blair Witch, sure. But like, I, I was so caught up in the, the fun of going to see these movies that I wasn't really putting together the big picture like that. But I think what really kind of changed for me was about five or six years ago, I started to realize that that year was becoming more and more of sort of a faded memory. You know, we've had like these really extraordinary movie years since. I actually think last year was a pretty great movie year. I tried to make a top 10 of last year and I had like 15 movies that I generally kind of loved. Um, but the idea of these movies that were not only really artistically innovative, um, but also kind of culture changing and also seen by everyone, that was very, very unique to 1999. It's very rare that you get just these series of films where, you know, even the least commercially successful movie of that year is like Office Space, which, which who is not, you know, everyone has seen it. No matter, no matter how you do the box office in 1999, if you had a movie that was really interesting and connected with people, it kind of became a blockbuster on home video or on cable. And that kind of doesn't happen anymore. You know, movies come and go so quickly now, whereas it felt as though the movies in 99 were just always kind of hanging around the culture. And I think it's just because they arrived at a time when movies were, incredibly important but i also think these were also just a remarkably you know remarkably smart savvy really kind of dazzling group of movies so brian i have a question so i, I was telling some people today about the show i was saying you know 1999 is a huge year and it's something that in a year that means a lot to john because brian i was only 11 in 1999 so like i actually saw none of these movies in theaters and obviously i oh, love wow. a lot of these movies but i didn't see any of them in theaters, I saw all the ones, like literally 100% of the ones that we've done or we will do for the podcast, I saw at home since 1999. And I was telling people about the idea, and they're like, yeah, but like, I think I think 2000s are better. No, I think 1997s are better. I think mm. like, there's like that, there's that debate. And I think you say something in the intro to your book that you could probably make the argument that every year is a good year for movies. And I do think that. But when people... Because if you are the 1999 movie expert, like what what about the year in particular? I know what, you, what you've already said, but like what's like the the cocktail party answer of like why this is actually the best movie year ever? Is it just like wh what's your answer for like, no, I think this year is a better year or, or whatever? Yeah, it's funny because it, there's kind of two ways. Like if you're at a cocktail party, one is kind of like there's a cocktail party trick to it, which is like you just start naming the movies. You just say, well, you know, The Matrix, Fight Club, uh, being John Malkovich, Election, uh, you know, Boys Don't Cry, uh, The Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense, you know, just keep going deep, you know, even stuff like Deep Blue Sea, which oh, yeah. a lot of people like, oh yeah, I like yeah. that movie. It's, I think the idea that all of these movies, you know, the smallest, like I said, some of the smallest movies of that year, you know, a movie like Go, which people loved. I mean, at home video, Go was just, was like rented for two years by everyone who was like in high school and college. Um, and so I think the kind of, the, the kind of cocktail party trick is you just kind of overwhelm people <laughs> with the number of movies. And you even point out like, look, it was, you know, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, which was a big movie, which was the biggest movie of the nineties in a way, just in terms of the fact that there was like five years of lead up to it. Um, but what I think really kind of seals 99, and I'm also someone who thinks, you know, obviously 1939 or 1974 or 1994, 19, you know, there's, there's so many years you can pick out. But for me, it's always just these generations of filmmakers. You had, you know, Stanley Kubrick came back and made his first movie in more than a decade. He made Eyes Wide Shut. George Lucas came back and made his first movie in a decade. So you have, you know, this really kind of elder statesman generation of filmmakers coming back. Then you have all these filmmakers making their first movie. You have Sofia Coppola making The Virgin Suicide. You have Brad Bird making The Eye Giant. You have, you know, Spike Jones making Being John Malkovich. So you have this younger generation who's just starting to emerge. And at the same time, the kind of middle class kind of, I don't want to say middle class, but sort of like middle-aged kind of filmmakers who had been kicking things around in the 90s just made some of their best movies. You know, David Fincher made Fight Club, you know, uh, Steven Soderbergh made The Limey, which every year goes up higher and higher on everyone's, like, Steven Soderbergh's top 10 list. Um, you had all these, you had Michael Mann making The Insider, and these are movies that cost tons of money, uh, had huge stars, and were absolutely not commercial <laughs> at all. I mean, like, a movie like Three Kings, it's so insane that David O. Russell got to go basically make a huge anti-war comedy, drama, action, heist movie, with George Clooney and Ice Cube and Spike Jones for like $60 million mm -hmm. uh, about a war that, you know, about war in the Middle East, early 90s, that some people were still very sensitive about. So I think there was just like, 
you can pick out any year and make a list of movies and go, here's 15 great movies from this year. It gets harder when you're sort of looking at like how those movies impacted the years to come and the kind of immediate impact those movies had and who was going to make those movies. Um, you know, look, you had uh, Boys Don't Cry, which is Kimberly Pierce. I mean, I'm not saying that movies were any more equitable in terms of who's going to make movies, but you had a lot of really emerging first time black filmmakers like Malcolm Lee. You had, you know, the Wachowskis making The Matrix. You just had a lot of people breaking into people's imaginations uh, through movies in a way that I just don't know if it's a year in the 90s or after where that quite comes close. The other thing I really appreciated, and I, I will be honest with you that I did not read too much of your book because I have this tendency to like regurgitate other people's ideas as my own. And I'm just like, oh, well, Brian said, and Brian said, so I didn't want to read too much before we did the podcast. I didn't, I didn't I, read it either. It's totally fine. I never read the whole thing. Awesome. I just, I'm <laughs> on the same page there. It's yeah. really good, Brian. You should read it. Yeah, sorry, page 19 is just a wiki entry on uh, on the musical Cats, and then I just copied and pasted But no one reads, <laughs> so no one notices. But what I really appreciated about the intro was that you said that it also felt like, and I think this goes to the the point you were just making about the people making their best movies or starting or whatever, is that it's people who grew up on the movies of like 65 to like 77 or however you break it down and how like that is, because I think that, you know, today, the age I am now at 34, it's like a lot of the things that I grew up with are coming back either as reboots or just like the, the styles or whatever, because like people my age are able to make movies now. And mm. so the things that I grew up with are making their way and showing on screen or whatever. But I think the fact that the point you make about all these filmmakers growing up with like a really radical time for filmmaking and like really like the first wave of like crazy, crazy stuff. I think that's a really cool thing that I never thought about before. So it's not only the fact that like 1999, was on the precipice of Y2K and right before 9-11 and just also just a great year for movies. But like the context with which these filmmakers were approaching their craft by the things they grew up with, I think is fascinating. If you have anything more to say about that or, you know, if you want to elaborate on that, I think that was a really interesting thing that I never thought about before today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the fun parts of that year is that it really felt like, you know, almost 100 years of movie history was kind of being distilled into one 12 month period. I mean, you know, you can't make, you can't make the matrix without the wizard of Oz. You can't make, um, you know, what's funny is that both two movies from 99 that are very dissimilar um, fight club and Rushmore, both were deeply influenced by the graduate, uh, which is, you know, kind of hilarious. It makes sense when you watch them both. Maybe <laughs> um, great, yeah. I think, I think fight club's a little more spiritually influenced by the graduate, but there is, you know, it's a dark humorous story about a, <laughs> about a young man who does not feel in place in the world and how he lashes out. And you had all these great, you know, I, I think the opening of uh, American Beauty, I think was basically influenced by Sun. I mean, Sunset Boulevard was an influence. So you have all these great, these, these were filmmakers who, it wasn't like you had this group of filmmakers who were coming and saying, you know, the history of Hollywood sucks. We're making our own thing. They were like, the history of Hollywood is amazing. And we have taken the good stuff and we're fusing it with new ideas and new technology to make all new, to make something that's completely, you know, steeped in the sort of really classic filmmaking of the past, but is absolutely going to be made for a circa 2000 uh, or circa 21st century audience. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know how you get a movie like, I don't know, like the sixth sense without so many years of like really classic chili kind of uh, like hard, you know, you know, I don't know if M night Shyamalan's mm -hmm. ever said, the Exorcist was a direct influence, but I, you know, I feel it's yeah, kind of the same be? kind of mold. Yeah, obviously, I mean, you have yeah. movies like that, <laughs> right. and you know, and, and the Blair Witch Project is basically just like a really great, creepy ghost story. Um, you know, you, it's, it's probably you know closer to like silent film horror movies, and completely chopped up and made on digital camera. I mean, it's to me that's the most fun part of it. That's the, the most fun art for anything, whether it's for me, whether it's music or TV or film, is something that's very much of the moment. And five years ahead of time, while also kind of pulling in so many interesting elements from the past. You know, I think that's that's what was really fun about the movies of that year. So I think you've brought up something that is one of the ingredients, sort of this project that we're doing, um, which is the I hadn't really thought about before, which is sort of the like, I guess you'd say third and fourth generation directors kind of passing the baton and like having their I mean, Malik obviously made a lot of great movies after, but like the Thin Red Line was sort of his return and then also kind of swan. I don't know. I don't know how I'd classify it, but like that and Eyes Wide Shut. And so you have Malick and Kubrick and you know some other directors who are kind of closing chapters on their, their work. And then you have sort of the emergence of new voices and then also sort of people like Fincher who are sort of finding 
where their voice really is. And I have to say, like, one of the things as well that I think is so interesting about this year and sort of what we have planned is that I don't necessarily like all of these movies. I don't necessarily think they're great. I actually think Fight Club is Fincher's worst movie. Mm. I, uh, I, and I, I include Alien 3. Well, I think that's crazy. <laughs> I just think that's crazy. I, I I understand. Well, not worst, but of I say of his really accomplished movies, it's the one that I'm least attached to, and and that I think is sort of least interesting. But I think it's also his most important movie because I do think it also sort of reset a lot of rules and um, you know allowed him to do things in the future and other directors to do things in the future that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And so, like one of the things that I think I noticed about this year, unique to it is and brian tell me if you agree is is if it's not so much if it's a good movie it's that there's all these really bold experiments happening that ultimately pay off later right and blurry which i think is a really obvious example of that where it's like this is not a great movie but you are doing things in this movie including the fact that it's not even really about it being a movie it's about it being a project right uh as the name suggests that are obviously that pay dividends in in franchises and ideas down the line, including the whole idea of like the found footage movie and, you know, the incredibly uh, successful paranormal activity uh, series and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, Blair Witch is interesting because, you know, one thing that I'd kind of forgotten until I started researching this was in my mind, I think we all have this cultural memory that after the Blair Witch Project came out, there were suddenly 5,000... found footage things and right i think i think paranormal activity i think the first was like 2007 or something it took a long time and honestly i think the reason is and i know this is probably the most divisive movie uh, in the whole book i think the blair witch project is great like i remember seeing it at a screening in midtown manhattan and i remember gripping the seats and maybe you had to mm-hmm. have that experience like maybe like you know i know a lot of people watched it on home video and it was like i mean i imagined watching it at a sleepover would have been super fun um but i do remember seeing it like just two weeks before it opened and I generally thought it was terrifying. I did not think it was real. By then everyone knew it wasn't real. Um, <laughs> but it's so funny because I would interview a lot of people for this. I interviewed like 130 people for this book, people who worked on all these movies. And without a doubt, if someone was under 25 when the Blair Witch Project came out, they loved it. If I was interviewing someone who was older, who was like in their 40s or 50s now, they were like, that movie yeah. was such a piece of garbage. Yeah. Um, but you can't deny how, I mean, I think even people who, um, you know, I do think, I don't think, I don't want to paraphrase him, but I think when I talked to Fincher, he was, you know, he was basically saying at one point, I don't know if it's in the book, but he's like, look, I, the Blair Witch Project was not a great movie, but he was really impressed by what it did formally. And a lot of these movies did things that were either like really on the surface inventive, like the Matrix bullet time, which was instantly kind of ripped off. You know, I mean, that was sort of the thing. The next two years, you had so many bad matrix ripoffs at advertisements, but some things were a little more subtle. And I think, I think it was some of the ideas that crept in. Like, I just think that, you know, it was the last kind of um, era of really kind of navel gazing kind of like, who are we as humans, existentialist kind of movie going. And I think that started to creep in more into mainstream films. Like, and, and these weren't always super deep movies, but I mean, if you look at office space and the matrix and fight club, they're all movies that are about like, being shackled to your desk, you know? And I think they spoke to a certain kind of uh, ennui and anger that would kind of become matter of fact in the next 10 years where people were like, oh yeah, like why did we spend the 80s and the early 90s thinking that work was awesome? Like this sucks. Like this whole life sucks. We're all chained to these desks and these computers and we don't want to be doing this anymore. And then we all just wound up doing that even worse when cell phones came out. But, you know, I, mm. I do think there is a long tail for these movies that, you know, I think in some ways those movies are still popping up in, in ways we don't even understand. And I, I got to say, like, one thing that shocks me is of all the movies that when I wrote this book, I was expecting to talk about for years afterward, I was not expecting Eyes Wide Shut to become this, like, weird... Like, people talk about Eyes Wide Shut as if it was a $500 million, like, blockbuster. Oh. It's referenced, <laughs> it's memed. It's, you know, like, honestly, like, some of the Illuminati stuff in Eyes Wide Shut, I yeah. think is what started burying... I think it started melting people's minds about various other conspiracy theories like it's an incredibly sneakily intellectual or influential movie but no one's made a movie like it it's just the ideas in it and the general vibe of that movie is now so sought out and so loved and such a part of the culture where we now just basically you know think that rich people are having weird gonzo sex parties and people are dying (laughs) and we're like yeah yeah that, that makes sense you know whereas 20 years ago it was a people like 
yeah, I don't want to see that in a movie. That sounds weird. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. I, I think that a lot of the way that a lot of these particular movies in this particular year have um, sort of infected our culture now so much later is really fascinating. I, nobody who wasn't me that I knew liked Eyes Wide Shut uh, in 1999. I loved it, but like I literally nobody else would talk about it with me because they didn't <laughs> like the movie. Um, and I don't know if people like it anymore now, but certainly it, does, it has this sort of weird uh sort of you know sponged into the culture thing that it, that it's done um and i think that's true of you know and the matrix is obviously very popular at the time but like it's become so much more than that right the way that it's sort of seeped into the culture um yeah and i think that's sort of what one of the things that makes it even like magnolia to a certain extent yeah. right like some of the references in magnolia i think um are transcend even people who probably have never even seen that movie no and i think magnolia and and fight club uh, especially and maybe American Beauty in some ways. I mean, you know, no one was using the term toxic masculinity 20 years ago. And it's a term that I think is now like very important to talk about, but I think has almost become almost watered down that we need to find a new way to talk about it. Um, but, you know, those two movies are very much about like angry men with power and what they want to do. And, and like, you know, you look at Tom Cruise's character <laughs> in Magnolia, who is just like this absolute monstrous narcissist awful guy who uses sex and talking about sex as a, as a true weapon. And you look at some of the, the, you know, the, the fight club adherents who are just, just want to blow things up. And it's like, well, we're having those conversations every day about these kind of people. Like this is these, these, this kind of, these, these kind of ideas are really kind of crept into day-to-day conversation, you know? Um, and we have not, you know, we have not solved the problems of toxic masculinity in any way. I'm wondering also, as we talk, as you talk about, both Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. John, I think the podcast you might have referenced before was specifically when we did Cruise Club because we, Brian, we had a show on the network where I watched Mm -hmm. with my friend Mike, we watched all of Tom Cruise's movies and there's something fascinating about like the biggest movie star in the world effectively going away for two years. Like he just stops making movies because he spends like, what is it, like 230 or like 200 something days right with Kubrick and his wife, which that doesn't end well. You know what I mean? But like there's something about like them making two of the best movies of the decade together or like Cruz being in both, Cruz making it like it's just there's something about the star power and the scope of it and the breadth of it that even though it's not five hundred million dollars, like it's this, I don't know. It just I think that what these movies do for better or worse is that no matter what you're interested in, whether it's genre or star power or you know themes or uh, just cool stuff, like there's just something for everybody. And I think the Cruz element of it all can't be you know overstated. I think because he's not like the star of Magnolia, but he is like, you were just saying like one of the main theme thematic plot points and boy, was for sure one of the most memorable scenes in that movie when like his introduction. Right. So I don't know. Oh, I mean, I mean, it's the most, it's really, you know, like I'm not trying to oversell this, but in my lifetime, since I've been watching going to the movies for like 35 years or so more, 40 years, I guess I'm, I mean, I'm only 19, but um, you know, it seems I've, I've been going to movies for a while. <laughs> I really can't think in my mind of like a time when a major star used their power to do something so unstarlike as when Tom Cruise made those two movies. And it's like they are I think that the two uh, as someone who loves risky business, it's one of my favorite movies. I do think Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia, when you think of them as like just one big movie um, are the best is the best thing. They're both like the best thing he ever did. And it's. It's also what he could do as a star is that he could say to Warner Brothers, like, I want to make this with Stanley Kubrick and we're going to go away for, yeah, like you said, like it, they weren't saying we're going to go away for a year and a half or two years. I mean, it wound up spiraling, but look, you know, Stanley Kubrick's like, I'll let some executives at Warner Brothers see this script, but not all of them. And away they went. And that's what you could do back then. And I think it's like, you know, I, I, I went to go see the Godfather in theaters a couple of weeks ago. I love the Godfather. And I know there's this like eight part Paramount TV uh, series coming out about the making of the Godfather, which I will happily mm-hmm. watch. But the eight-hour mm-hmm. the eight-hour movie I want to see a making of is Eyes Wide Shut. I want to see the whole thing. I want to see a dramatic recreation. I want to see the day Paul Thomas Anderson came onto set and was hanging around Stanley Kubrick and probably asking him annoying questions. I want to watch like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman driving back from the set after fifteen hours, like and realizing they have twelve more months to go. Like that to me is a fascinating movie. That movie is like that is one of the few movies from that year that I think the making of could be just a whole book. Um, if you ever got the two of them to talk about it. <laughs> and that's maybe 20 years away if that series ever happens. Right, but yeah, uh, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Finger, fingers crossed. Um, Tom Cruise will also... want to play himself. I think it's the thing. He will want to digitally de-age and play <laughs> himself 
Yeah. So yeah, I think that one of the like the cruise example is a good one because another thing that seems to kind of be happening here is a lot of the sort of power dynamics that had ruled Hollywood for the previous couple of decades are shifting. Um, new ways of being famous are happening, right? There's there's new sort of there's people who want to take risks and there's a changing of the guard. And like a lot of that's sort of illustrated, I think, by what happens with Tom Cruise here. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is like when we're doing this podcast and when it comes to your book, your book, you had to you had to set certain rules of like what counts as 1999. Um, we are doing the same thing somewhat arbitrarily. Uh, Rushmore does not make that cut. Um, Red Line <laughs> does not make that cut. Yeah. Um, so we're not we're not doing those two. But like Run Lola Run does oh, God, um, yeah, for us. Movie. Yeah. And of course, like when you talk about Eyes Wide Shut, like that was in development for like a thousand years. And so it wasn't really a 1999 movie. It was mostly made in like 97. And, you know, so... It's obviously you're really dealing with a several year span here, right? But so so you can't just attribute everything to sort of Y2K, I don't think. And no, no, I think yeah. that we've 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 established a couple other things. I think another one that I thought of though today, I was actually listening to um your your great uh Siskel and Ebert podcast, oh, thanks. Roger. Um, which is phenomenal. And I I like you, like I they were Siskel and Ebert were a huge part of my life, right, growing up as well. <laughs> yeah. Um and it, it occurred to me when I was listening to it, I was like, oh, right. When Gene Siskel died, February 1999, like that was a really big moment. And I, I've now sort of been reflecting on the impact that Siskel and Ebert had mm. um, in modern day film criticism, that it's completely reshaped the way we think about what it is to critique a movie and the way that everybody on the internet talks. And also the way that like there was a transition there from the death of Siskel to like the rise of Harry Knowles mm -hmm. and Ain't It Cool News, yeah. especially around The Phantom Menace. Um, do you want to talk about that for a second? Like, what are your thoughts on the way that not just, I mean, obviously you can talk about the internet when it comes to Blair Witch, but but not just in terms of the way that it's used to sell movies, but the way that like internet culture is starting to shape and change the way that sort of we both um, see movies, but also sort of process them and critique them, right? Um, the way we do today versus, versus in the Siskel and Ebert days. Yeah, and it's funny, actually at one point when I was, reporting the book, I actually thought I was going to have a whole thing. Uh, I, I was really going to get into Siskel passing away and sort of talk about um, how, while these movies were arriving, the idea of criticism and who, you know, who gets to talk about movies and who do we, you know, how does uh, opinion get shaped and ideas get formed was all changing because the internet, and it just never, it never quite worked for the book. But I mean, absolutely. I mean, you look at, you know, it's, it's very weird for me. I'm always trying to figure out in my mind if there was like a, a switch moment when it kind of went from the traditional newspaper critics, TV critics to the internet's sort of uh, discourse. I mean, certainly uh, for better or worse, I was someone who um, in college and in my early twenties, I, you know, you know, I mean, some people would check CNN.com first thing. I would usually check <laughs> ain't it cool news or like mm -hmm. some of the other, I mean, I was very uh, invested in whether the, you know, photos of the 1998 Godzilla would leak <laughs> stuff like that, which was, <laughs> which was a remarkable waste of my time and probably a speaking of Siskel and Ebert, by the yeah, way, exactly. make a yeah, that's right. cameo in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was starting to change and it, it's, I do think when you look at the nine, nine movies, you know, there are a couple of these films did kind of bump up against that. Certainly, um, you know, I interviewed Ahmed best about playing Jar Jar a couple of years ago for wired and certainly the abuse that he got um, after the Phantom Menace came out was very much one of those things we look at and you go, Oh, well, this was, this was the this was the beginning of something bad, you know. I mean, it was this idea of mm. people piling on a performer who's just because they're in a movie they don't like, which, you know, this crazy kind of like personal attacks, which got very personal uh, against him. Um, that's that's the bad side of internet culture that started to emerge in '99. I do think that um, you know there was a lot of there was a lot of joy in discussing these movies online. I think The Matrix was also certainly one of those movies that, even though I was not caught up in the 1999 Ain't It Cool News message board <laughs> discourse, um, it was kind of fascinating to dip in and out of it because a lot of these movies were um, very open to interpretation. And it was even though people you had a lot of people chiming in and it got very noisy, it wasn't the kind of conversations we have now, which tend to be more. Um, uh, here's a plot hole I found. Here's a character I found problematic. It was more just sort of like, what did this movie mean to you? What did it mean to me? And I think some of these movies inspired those kind of conversations, which was 
which was very fun and kind of a maybe more innocent version of movie online movie discourse that's completely gone now. I mean, maybe it's somewhere else and I'm just not seeing it. Um, but it, it didn't feel as strident and as kind of mean-spirited uh, as internet movie discourse would become. But it was certainly growing at that point. And yeah, I mean, you know, word of mouth helped these movies a lot. I think a lot of people, you know, a movie like Election, no one saw in the theater. And I think it took home video and probably people online saying, this is good, you should go see Election to kind of give that little boost. See, that's what's fascinating because like I literally grew up in the internet era and I don't, I don't remember, like I wasn't, this is a weird thing to say, but I wasn't a fan of movies really before the internet. Like, not that they're mm. correlated, but like, I never had to check the. I, I never had that experience really of like the waiting for Godzilla images. Like everything was just at my fingertips basically, and so yeah. to have this like sort of idyllic or more positive, like I just you know, I I kind of long or yearn for a time where there's like more civil discourse around movies, but. I don't know, like that just, and that's what, that's the, like I was saying this to, to John, I will admit one of my insecurities here on the podcast is that like, like 1999 <laughs> meant so much for him because he saw all these in theaters and I'm like, I don't mm. see any of them. And like, I hope that like, I'm able to look at them as movies. Like I understand like, you know, good movie or a bad movie, but like to me, like it wasn't a movie year. Like it was anything, it was like a video game year or something. Right. Oh, so yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it's a fascinating thing. And I'm just, you know, trying to put my time capsule cheese something <laughs> on. That's a thing, right? And for some people, for some people, it was a TV year. I mean, that's the thing. It's like Nine Nines. Also, yeah. I mean, it's one of the biggest. I don't know if the NSYNC record that came out that year was the highest selling first week of all time, or it was the one afterward. But like, you know, it, Napster was around in '99, and it, one of the disconnects is that I, when I would do interviews for the book, people would say, "Oh, well, Napster was blowing up," and it's like actually Napster, it was it started in '99, but really 2000, 2001, 2002 yeah. is when it really. Yeah. So '99, people were just buying literally millions of CDs every week. They were watching TRL. So for some people, it's a music year. For some people, it's like, yeah, I was watching, they were watching The Sopranos and they were like, this is a TV year. This is the HBO year. You know, it is, even though I do think there was, I do think movies were still kind of like at the very top of pop culture at that point. Um, you know, certainly video games were huge by the late nineties. I mean, they were just, you know, it, it was, there, there was so many things going on. Um, and that's one thing that I, so kind of impressed me about that year for movies is that you know, for all the things that were going on, everyone knows what the rules of fight club are. You know what I mean? Like these things from these ideas, this dialogue from movies still managed to puncture and sort of break through the culture. Whereas nowadays it's much harder for a movie to, it's, it's very hard for a movie catchphrase. That's not from a Marvel movie to actually circulate and kind of, you know, become known to everyone. Whereas, there's no monoculture anymore, right? Or just yeah, right, so yeah. fragmented. Yeah, and maybe and maybe the monoculture never existed, and we just kind of convinced ourselves it did. But, but <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, I, I think about it a lot because nowadays I'm kind of like, I don't really need the monoculture anymore, and um, it's mourned a lot. And I'm like, yeah, but there was also a lot of bad. I mean, there's also a lot of bad movies in '92. There's a lot of bad studio movies made in the '90s. Um, and yeah, I'm very wary of being the '90s nostalgia just because I'm like, boy, I sat through a lot of crap and a lot of terrible things happened in the world. But yeah, it did feel as though at least back then. Um, even if for you it was a music year, like you 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 saw the Blair Witch Project, you know what I mean. You see, you had to go see it. Like maybe you didn't see Three Kings, maybe you didn't see Election, but you were definitely going to check out the South Park movie. You know, I mean, these things were sort of popped through and, and really kind of had a real presence over the rest of popular culture. Yeah, you know, it's funny the monoculture thing, and I do think that that the this year is as good as any to start looking at when uh, monoculture starts to fade away and something takes its place. Um, that one of the reasons why the sort of Gene Siskel thing stuck out to me is I remember, and I'm sure you do, Brian, that, you know, the big thing, like when you got the Sunday paper and you looked at those one page, you know, movie poster spreads for a movie coming out, if it had the two thumbs up, like emblazoned on it, like that was the seal of approval. Like that's when yeah. you went to go see the movie. That was the 98% Rotten Tomato rating. That was the 79 plus percent Metacritic rating, right? Um, that was the thing. And it was in, enormously influential. But of course, then without it, you know, Ebert tried to go on without Siskel to you know, varying success. I think Roper was pretty good, but like it was never the same cultural phenomenon. And the two thumbs up thing really did not have the influence that it would, would have before. And so I think that's sort of when it kind of opened up the door for internet. And Joey, like one of the reasons why I think you know, why I love talking to you about this sort of thing is the, the the little age gap between us is like, I don't I don't use Letterboxd, right? But like, I know a lot of people do and like rely on that as a way of sort of tracking and 
you know, sort of validating movies or whatever. Um, and, and there's definitely a story that I think kind of begins here, right? That that is um, that is told there. I think that with everything, whether it's Letterboxd or Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes or Siskel and Ebert or whatever, I think you just need to find the metrics that kind of work for you. And because, mm. like, I... I don't know if I, I don't think I've said this in the episode that we recorded yet, but like I hate Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's like a broken system, and like I I understand people who like it. I understand people why they appreciate it, but I think just like if a movie is like a C plus across the board and it's a hundred percent, but it's like well that doesn't mean it's a good movie. It doesn't mean that I should want to see it or whatever, right? And I prefer other things, but like even other things are skewed, and so I just I don't know. Like I think I. I I think with everything, whether it's 1999 movies or, or anywhere, it's just anybody who cares enough about movies should know that find find a metric that works for you or something or just see everything. That's that's a simpler way. Just just watch <laughs> that's everything. That's what you do. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's funny. I You know, because like I mentioned, I worked in the video store in the 90s and there were two ways to get and I worked in a suburban video store. People actually were not were not like. You know, people there were not, um, yeah, they had very good taste, but sometimes it would be hard to steer some people. And I would say, you know, if there was a movie that we really liked or that I really liked, you know, if you said Siskel and Eber gave it two thumbs up or you said it won Best Picture or got an Best Picture, those are the two ways to really kind of convince someone who was on the fence to rent something. Yep. Nowadays, I have yep. no idea what the equivalent of that is. And yep. my own, <laughs> honestly, the, I think the only way to be up on movies and to find new movies that you like I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be glib, but like, have friends with really cool movie taste. I would say, ninety yep. percent of the movies that I saw last year, not ninety. No, that's wait. I, I go to the movies all the time, so I mean, I'm definitely primed to see most movies either way. But I would say, of the smaller movies that I saw last year that I loved, I would say half of those became because a friend texted me and said, "You got to see Shiva Baby. You will love this." You know what I mean? Like those. Those are the kind of things where in like. And that's the kind of thing where, like, Shiva Baby was already on my list, but it goes from number six to number one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, those are the, yep. There's this mm-hmm. weird amorphous thing, and sometimes a movie blows up on Twitter, and people are like, oh, so-and-so is great. You should go see this. And I and that helps me a lot. I don't really turn to Rotten Tomatoes. Like, I don't really have um, – there are critics I love reading after I see a movie, which I've always done. I've always been someone who comes back from a movie and then reads the reviews because I just like seeing how other people think about it. But um, – Unless it's a movie like Old Henry, which I saw a bunch of critics I like saying, hey, this is a great, cool, dark Western. Um, that's like that's one of the few movies last year where I just saw a bunch of critics give me good reviews and I'm like, oh, I really want to see that. And I trust, you know, the critic at Vulture. I trust the critic, uh, you know, over here or there. And so that's what pushes you. But honestly, just have good friends. And then it's like, you know, I use Letterboxd to remember what I saw because I have middle-aged brain. But also I like when people do very funny one-liners about a movie. Yep. I don't use it to like <laughs> – I don't really use it as a guide of what I should see because honestly, on any given day, I have 30 movies I already want to see. So for me, it's always a matter of what should I put at the top of my list right now, you know. And, and listen to good podcasts too. There's a lot of podcasts now that I listen to about movies, new movies that I, I'm out for a walk and I stop and like email myself the names of movies. I'm like, oh, I got to see this. Like – which is not good for yeah. my health because I'm eventually either going to stop walking or walking to in front of a car while doing this. But yeah, I think, I don't think it's, you know, the, I think it, I think word of mouth is just like, honestly, just make as many cool, smart movie going nerd friends as you can. You will never be, you'll never be lacking for good movie recommendations. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, you hit on something really interesting. I don't want to, not to get too far off topic here, but like the, the, we had video stores then and the culture was very different. And I do, I I think that letterboxd from what I know about the way people use it is they use it as in many ways, a replacement for that sort of video store recommendation culture. Mm. You know, I, I, I worked in a video store in late nineties as well. And uh, you know, making the employee recommendation shelf, like for, you know, for each employee was like the best fucking thing. It was so great. Um, And you, you know, you, you don't have that anymore, right. Anywhere. Um, so finding ways on the internet to sort of replicate that, I think has been really interesting. And it also, you know, it, it reminds me of this whole monoculture idea, which I do think was a real thing, by the way, like I remember when the X-Files was on and like <laughs> how ubiquitous it was, you know, in, in the Friday night when you would watch it and then like, you'd have to remember everything by Monday. So at school you could, you know, right. talk about it on Monday. <laughs> Um, what I, one thing I think is really kind of cool about what's happening right now is that like when with like Disney Plus with its like tentpole shows is showing is you know launching them or streaming them on the same day in like one episode a week and sort of reproducing some of that monoculture so that we're all watching like The Mandalorian 
on the same Wednesday, right? And then sort of tw tweeting about it or whatever. Um, and you are sort of getting some of that, some of that back, which is, I think, a really interesting way that sort of the internet since Y2K has sort of retro engineered something that it also took away, um, which mm. is just kind of a fascinating kind of cultural phenomenon. Yeah. And I mean, and no one, I, I think, you know, the monoculture going away is probably for the best. I, I do think it's like, <laughs> there was a lot of, there was a lot of people being shut out from getting work made. Yeah. The thing is once in a while, when there is a big pop cultural phenomenon, like the most fun thing to happen to moviegoers in the last 10 years, I swear is get out because get out played for eight months. Everyone saw it. Everyone knew the references. Everyone, no one could stop talking about it. As soon as you saw it, like the first time I saw it on a Thursday night when it opened in a crowded theater with one of those theaters that served booze. And it was like the most fun movie going experience. And I think a movie like that where everyone sees it, everyone, you know, everyone knows the sunken places. Everyone knows the lines. Everyone, it's just like, that is really fun. Cause it's really fun when you see a movie you love and you tell a friend, Oh, go see that. And then call me up. You know what I mean? That, that is really, I had, yeah. a, I had a really th fun thing a couple weeks ago when the Batman came out, like the next morning I saw Thursday night would open the next morning. I, I texted like one of my good Batman loving friends. I was like, Hey, what time are we going to jump on the phone today to talk about this? Like, right. you know, and that is, <laughs> that is really fun. And, you know, I just wish it happened for more things than just Marvel movies. I just, I wish there were kind of mid-sized monoculture movements that weren't necessarily, you know, born of IP and franchises. So when something like get out happens, it's really, it's really fun when it feels like, Oh, we're all excited about something that we've never seen before. And that's part of the joy is just talking about it with others. And I will say, like, to Marvel's credit, like, what they've done with the MCU in creating something that we're all, we're all into, right? Like, everybody talk, everybody's seen every Marvel movie and talks about it and references it and all that sort of thing. Like, it's, you know, maybe it's, maybe it takes up too much of the, the, you know, air in the room. I don't know. But um, it is cool that that exists and that we have this sort of thing that we're all, we all know, right? We, oh, yeah. we, we all know what happens in all of the movies. And Yeah. And I mean, and, and for people who, but the thing is, too, is that people who want to opt out of that, there's so many other you know, smaller side and MCUs. It's like, you know, it's like people, it's like, uh, uh, like, I don't know if you have any Downton Abbey obsessors in your life, but those, like those fans. I'm are one of them. Yeah. They're hardcore. Like this Downton <laughs> Abbey movie is going to be like, it's going to be the Avengers for people who love Downton Abbey. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, um, there's all kinds of like mini pockets. I, I, but I do wish there were a couple more that were all just kind of, grooving too. Like that was one of the most fun things about the pandemic where it's like, everyone's watching the Sopranos again. I'm like, all right, we're all watching the Sopranos again. We're all talking about the Sopranos. So when it's fun, when that happens, it's fun. You know, it's like, uh, I, I do, I do miss that. I mean, look, I worked at Entertainment Weekly. I love pop culture. Um, I love talking about other people. It's just, you know, and I have friends that don't go to the movies as much anymore and who I used to see movies with and watch everything with. And it does kind of bum me out where I'm like, Hey, uh, have you seen Have you seen Worst Person in the World yet? Are you gonna go see it? Like, like when are, when are we gonna be able to talk about this? Um, so yeah, I, I do I do love um, I I don't want a monoculture, but I don't mind a occasionally monolithic thing popping into the culture. Well, I think that's what's nice about you know everything that we're talking about here is that the people who who grew up with it or experienced it at some point are seeing this return or this possible return if they want to re-embrace it as a good thing. And then people who never like, you know, like Gen Z or whatever, just like, Oh, like this is a different way to watch it. And like, it's, it, it's they're they're discovering it for the first time. Like there's sort of the best of both worlds there that they can watch all 200 or whatever episodes of friends in the weekend if they want, but also they have this, you know, same kind of shared cultural experience. I think that like the farther we get away from everything, the closer we're going to wind up back at the thing. So mm. I don't know. I like it. Yeah, I like it too. And I think it's so so interesting. Like I don't have a lot of Gen Z people in my life, but my experience is that for them, pop culture is just this flat circle sort of thing where it's like, there's no future, there's no past. It's like the Sopranos could pop up in the same way that like, with the like the Ting Tang song from a couple of the, uh, what was it? That's not my name. Oh, the like, Ting Tang song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ting Tang, sorry. <laughs> Ting Tang, sorry. Um, but like, you know, these things can just be plucked out of this giant flat timeline that is pop culture, which I think is a much more, like, I kind of envy them. Like, I definitely wish when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, that I've been able to find, you know, a cool 60s weirdo movie or horror movie that I just just blew up one day. That'd be a really fun way to discover it, as, as opposed to, like, you know, trying to find something in the back of a video store or some late night monster movie. Like, I, you know, I just, I, I it is exciting to me that people are excited about popular culture and finding new ways and new things to get excited about, no matter where it comes from. I love that you made that with a true detective reference. Uh, I didn't even realize I was doing it until I got there, but yeah, I guess I was. Yeah. 
Hey, Brian, I don't know if this is a Sophie's Choice thing, but do you have a favorite movie from 1999? I don't know. You might even include in the book, but do you have a favorite movie from that year? You know, I don't. I had, you know, it's funny. I, I like, I would do top five lists when the book came out and it always shifted. And now it's almost been, it's close to five years since, it's five years since I wrote that book and almost five years since it came out. So I think it would change a lot. I do remember thinking while I was working on it that I really thought Election was kind of a perfect movie. I mean, it's just, it's so well made and it's so funny and um, just feels so more transgressive every every time I watch it. Um, you know, I think I think Three Kings is really spectacular. I, I'm not a huge David O. Russell fan, um, but I think that's his sharpest comedy. And it's, it's the kind of movie that I really like, which is a very big budget kind of F you, which I think is very hard to make. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I do I do really dig. Um, I You know, it's funny. I, I'm going to probably show my oldest kid The Sixth Sense a little bit, like maybe in a year or two, because I don't think she has no idea about the twist and I'm kind of excited to watch it. And I think that movie holds up remarkably well. It's just like classically made storytelling. Um, but I don't have, and, and I, I, there's also like ones that I didn't include in the book. Like I really do love Deep Blue Sea. It's one of my favorite genre movies of the last 25 <laughs> years. And there's, there's, a, there's a really fantastic cannibalism movie called Ravenous that came out that year, which yeah. is like yeah. insane. Like it's, it's, you know, had a very troubled production, so it's kind of a mess, but it has a plus fantastic score and it's just like a really cool creepy dark gnarly you know low budget studio horror movie and so even stuff like that i've I've been rediscovering the last couple years but i don't know i mean election seems to be also when i talk to all the filmmakers for the book that does seem to be the one movie that everyone across the board love but i don't know tomorrow might be the limey you know i I, it could always change and then the follow-up question because i appreciate all that do you have a favorite movie that's not from 1999 or is that also equally difficult Oh, like of all time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the movie I think about and has enveloped my whole life, there's probably two. One is Jaws, which is just absolutely, I could watch, you know, it's the movie I've seen. I've probably seen it the most, more than any other movie. I know it so well. Like, I love the movie. I just, it's, I was fascinated with it before I even saw it. And then I also, um, you know, when Pulp Fiction came out, uh, I saw it five times in the theaters. There's stuff about the Pulp Fiction that, it doesn't square well with me in 2022. Um, but man, that movie was just such a, a mind breaker and an eye opener for me about what you could do with movies and just such a blast. Um, so those two are probably, but it's also, you know, I love, I love old noir movies. I love, I mean, the taking a Pelham one, two, three is like my favorite seventies movie, which is not, you know, aside from Jaws, which is like a, a Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw train robbery movie. I absolutely love it. I've seen it a million times. Um, you know, and I, but again, like I've, I don't know. Right now, the worst person in the world, which I've seen twice in the theaters, is probably my favorite movie. Yeah, right movie's awesome. like, Yeah, but Licorice Pizza was my favorite movie a few months ago. Um, <laughs> you know, Drive My Car was was my favorite movie the day the week I saw it. I mean, I, I just fall in love with movies still very very easily. You know. And last question before we go, and and um, I think you're the person who's best to ask this. I, I you can guess the movies that we're going to cover. Um, everything we've talked about, obviously. Um, and maybe it's ravenous. I don't know. But is there a movie that <laughs> that you think we might not get to that we absolutely should, uh, in your estimation? Uh, I mean, I, I really think that even though I know some people have a lot of problems with no, I think Boys Don't Cry is an incredibly important movie. I, I think that there is um, pushback on it that I absolutely understand at this point. Um, but it's just a movie that... Um, I think people in the late 90s, maybe someone thought of it as homework, which I hate when people say that, but it's a beautiful movie. It's really, really, really good. Um, I'm trying to get other ones that are maybe that may, might fall through the cracks. I mean, there's, again, I, I, again, like I really don't want to be the guy who just talks about Deep Blue Sea four times in a podcast, but <laughs> that is that to me is emblematic of a kind of like 60, 70 million dollar genre movie where, you know, it's like it's. I miss those, you know, it's just like, yeah. I, I love um, really kind of nasty, well-made action movies. And that one is both those things. I will just very quickly, I want to give my friend's podcast a shout out. Mark, my friend, Mark Hoffmeyer has a podcast called Deep Lucy, the podcast where he and his co-host uh, went through that movie DVD chapter by DVD chapter. And then they've gone on to other movies since then, but uh, we will definitely be covering Deep Lucy because I feel like he would never talk to me again if we don't cover that movie. So would it, uh, would it surprise you? get some love. 
Would it surprise you if I told you that I have been on Mark's show? About it would not surprise me because Mark is an I awesome think, dude, and yeah, it's, I, it's, 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 a, it's a match made in heaven. I think I was in one of the very first episodes of that show. I think I, well, there you go. I think I'm one of the few people to really uh, stand for Deep Blue Sea in a way that's probably not commensurate with the quality of the movie. But I saw that at a test. I saw that at a screening, uh, the first ever screening of it, and I watched people freak out when Samuel Jackson got eaten and then I got to watch Samuel Jackson walk out on stage afterward, which was the most fun thing to see. Um, yeah. So I bring that movie up a lot because I do love it. And I, and I do think, you know, as much as I, I love the very high end, well-made respectable movies in 1999, there was a lot of really well-made junk in that year as well. Yeah. We have a lot of friends who love deep blue sea. So if we didn't cover that at some point, uh, we'd be in trouble. That <laughs> so, makes me happy. It, it, it was, it was a modest hit in 99. I love that it has a following now. It, it was a crowded field. in 99. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as we, as we have, as we have established, I can tell, I can tell you the movie I didn't cover that people were the most mad at me about, uh, which is, I think jawbreaker. I think there were a couple, I think there was a 1919 movie. I'm trying to think it was a I had to, I had to actually go in and see some of the, angry tweets that I got from various people, but there was Jawbreaker and gosh, was there one more? Or maybe it was, um, no, I think no, because I did have um, She's All That in there, but no, certainly people were very, very, very upset about Jawbreaker not being covered, And but I'm a cheerleader, which I think I should have covered. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, oh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, that's the one that people, yeah. has a huge <laughs> fan base and I just couldn't include it and uh, boy, I heard about that a lot. So... <laughs> I have uh, I I've, I've over the last few months put out some uh, some feelers to some of our our friends and colleagues about what they want to cover and the two the two movies by far that get the most like oh, I want to talk about these two are Jawbreaker and Drop Dead Gorgeous yeah so I missed out um, I missed out <laughs> there's there's a, there's a whole thing there that uh, and I've only seen one of them and I'm not going to say which I don't want to get in trouble so well, I've seen neither of them I'm pretty sure. We will, we will have seen them both by the time all is said and done. <laughs> anyway, all right, Brian, uh, we're going to let you go. Before we do, would you like to point people in the direction of um, your book or Twitter or whatever else you uh, you want them to know about? Yeah, I mean, the, the book's called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. You can pretty much get it anywhere. Um, I mean, not not at the grocery store, you can get it, you know, it's, it's, it came out at Simon and Schuster, so you can get it on your Kindle, you can get it at the library. Um, I don't tweet much, but I do, when I write a story or do something on a podcast, I usually put it at, at Brian Raftery. Uh, but, and then I did Gene and Roger, which was a ringer slash Spotify podcast. That's kind of annoyingly hard to find on iTunes. <laughs> it like, really is. I it's am, weird. Yeah, yeah. It's buried. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. 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 It's been a, it's, it was a little frustrating to realize that, but it's, if you Google, you will find it. If you Google, you will, it'll eventually bring you to Gene Ampersand Roger. Um, but that was a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm hopefully going to do another podcast, uh, movie podcast fairly soon, hopefully starting this fall or so. Well, I endorse Gene and Roger. It's worth uh, oh, thank you. digging through whatever service you use to try and figure <laughs> out where it actually is. Uh, but it's uh, it is. yeah. Email me and I'll read it to you over the phone. There you go. You can't find it. I'll just yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, you can find me on Twitter at probably real JB. At Joey is at Soul Popped, and the show is at 1999 Podcast. Um, Brian, thank you so much. Joey, thank you so much. Hey, thank you guys. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Brian.